Scuba Obsessed, the weekly podcast we talk about all things scuba diving, from cool new gear, to places to dive, and scuba in the news. episode 415 is recorded live august 1st 2019 welcome back to scuba obsessed i'm darren jilson coming to you from the southwest side of the great state of michigan where we are entering the dog days of august it is hard to believe we are to that time of the year already. Joining me this week, we have Mac, the dive mentor. How are you doing today, Mac? Well, I'm glad to be here. It's, it was actually a beautiful day. I almost stayed out there at the beach with about a billion people to watch the sunset, but hey, duty calls, and here I am. <laughs> well, we, we certainly appreciate that. It's hard to pull anybody away from the, the water, especially a nice sunset on Lake Michigan. You know, here on the, I've heard it's called the third coast or the sunset coast of Michigan. So it's a beautiful, just beautiful weather. Um, and we've been pretty fortunate. We've, we've had some hot, sticky summer weather, but on average, it's been pretty nice. Uh, we actually turned the air conditioners off yesterday evening, which it's always nice to be able to do that. Had a couple of evenings, and if you're out there with a bike, it sure comes in handy to have had a sweatshirt. Yeah. Yeah, I can get a little, little nippy there uh, at some points. We'd like a little breezy. Everybody. Yes. Well, we'd like to thank everybody who's in the chat room. We have uh, Derek and Christopher so far have shown up. We'll have a few more as the evening goes on. If you want to participate in the chat room, which sometimes is better than the show, uh, look us up. We're on uh, Discord. If you go to our website, www.scubobsess.com. You can find links that should show you how to listen and participate. I think I've updated them. If not, uh, drop us a line at the show at scubaobsessed.com and we will get back to you and tell you how you can listen. Oh, and Eric just showed up too. So, yeah, we either see everybody's not used to us actually starting on time. This is two weeks in a row. <laughs> We're going to spoil everybody. So, this first story we have for tonight is a woman shocked by uh, to be reunited with her prosthetic leg. Scuba diver happened to find it in less than a day. When Ariel Rigney lost her prosthetic leg in the Oregon River, she was almost sure she would never see it again. So imagine her surprise when it was rescued by a friendly snorkeler the very next day. Rigney, who lost her leg in a car accident as a teenager, says she regularly used her prosthetic to go running and swimming. In fact, she had gone rafting down the Clackamas River with her friends last one uh, weekend in order to celebrate her 32nd birthday. Unfortunately, the bungee cord that had been securing her prosthetic became undone. So when the gang of friends hit a particularly bumpy part of the river, her leg went flying into it. Several of the friends uh, tried diving down to get their leg, but they didn't have any luck. Embarrassed and frustrated, Rigney made a Facebook post about her missing prosthetic at the suggestion of a friend. She didn't expect anything to come from the post. But then the next, very next day, she received a photo of the rescued leg from a man named Eric uh, Gartner. Since Gartner was an avid scuba diver, he's no stranger finding peculiar things in the river, but he's particularly stunned to find 
a prosthetic leg with a rainbow sandal still attached at the bottom of the river. Upon returning home, he searched Clackamas River lost leg and found her post. Not only did Gartner help successfully reunite her with her prosthetic, the two of them also managed to a happy new friendship. What are the odds of that, that you would be in the right part of the river in less than 24 hours without somebody prompting you and come across the leg? I do know that Sir Larry, when they go up north and do their uh, rafting slash kayaking slash tubing down a large section of river, uh, if you were to dive, you would never have to buy beer. Really? Well, people have it in coolers and towing it behind and they get lost. They come undone. And he says, hey, it's already cold when you bring it up. So I reckon you could find a a leg too, but that would be be awesome. I would want a photo of that. Well, but the thing of the beer, I mean, that (laughs) I'm not so much that somebody eventually found it, but the fact that they found it so quickly and weren't even looking specifically yes. for it. Yep. So that's just the thing with odds. Now I'm betting that he's probably a regular on this section of river for just this type of thing. Not necessarily he's expecting to find a leg, but you know, sunglasses, wallets, all sorts of things are probably routinely uh, going lost. Especially if, it's a, especially if it's a bumpy part, like she said. Yeah. Yeah. You, you, you got the rapids and you just, head up just a little bit down below where everything starts to settle down and you probably have some pretty good pickings. I do know, I do know at Silver Beach, you know, where all the boats park Yeah. on the right-hand side near the docks or near the uh, pier. That's your best place to get quality sunglasses. (laughs) Seriously. You you, you need to grab me a few. I could use a pair. Mine are getting kind of dated. I think I've, the glasses I'm wearing, I bought to go to Cancun like 15 years ago. So it's, it shows you how much I'm concerned about being in style. I know this is off topic real quick. Uh-huh. Did you see the article in the paper about uh, a guy found several buckets full of golf balls out there in the lake? And they were saying, oh, my God, can you imagine golf balls in the lake? And uh, what they found <laughs> out was there's a golf course nearby, and it's on the bluffs like what we have ours. And on one of the holes, there's a big sign, no? If you got a junk ball, you want to see how far you can hit it, hit it out in the lake. Oh, really? <laughs> oh, yeah. So they brought a big thing about polluting the, the lake with golf balls, blah, blah, blah. And the guy was out there, and he got tons of them. But we don't have any necessarily cliffs to shoot off, you know. No. And we're still finding them. I mean, I got a bunch off the Havana last week. Yeah, well, I think there's also people who uh, will drive off a boat. They used to be a common pastime. That's true, but that's got to be a pretty good-sized boat. (laughs) Well, I mean, just just enough to where you can swing. I mean, you could do, yeah. I mean, you're probably in the, I'd have to say, 40-plus range. Yeah, yeah, more than I'm going to be on. And uh, I'm trying to remember, I think there was some, uh, of the larger cruise lines that actually had a driving range over the water. Yeah, I've seen those. Yeah. yeah. But probably not now. Somebody's going to call them out on it. Unless they're biodegradable and they feed the fish at the same time. 
I guess you could do. You could somebody could come up with a biodegradable version. Yeah, or, or make ice golf balls, and that way they. Oh yeah, there you go. <laughs> hey, if, if it's golf related, I heard somebody say, "Yeah, even a bad idea in golf will make you a million dollars." Well, this is one that uh, kind of almost like a follow up. Uh, this one's out of Alabama. Alabama's filed an admiralty, admiralty claim for the Clotilda, uh, 86 foot schooner that carried 109 enslaved Africans to the Alabama coast in July of 1860, more than 50 years after the nation banned the import of slaves. After the four month voyage where one African died, the ship's owner towed the Clotilda up the Spanish River, scuttled it, and burned it near 12 Mile Island on the east bank of the river in an effort to obscure his actions. In exerting the admiralty claim over the ship, it is believed that the Clotilda, the Admiral Historical Commission, said in the following protocol used to preserve other historic shipwrecks, such as the Titanic, interference with ongoing operations and or future endeavors would substantially and irreparably harm efforts to document, protect, and preserve the shipwreck schooner Clotilda would be harmful to public's interest in this historically significant vessel, as well as create significant hazard to the safe and successful operations at the shipwreck site, according to a nine-page complaint filed Friday in Mobile Federal Court. In May, the commission announced it discovered the remains of the Clotilda, according to a redacted report with blacked-out portions describing the exact location of the wreck, which you can see probably on Google. The Clotilda rests in the ship graveyard under about five feet of cloudy water. Uh, Attorney John Cavanaugh Jr. of the mobile firm Burr and Foreman, deputized by the state, filed the claim on behalf of the commission, which says it has a mandate to preserve the shipwreck under the Abandoned Shipwrecks Act and the Alabama Underwater Cultural Resources Act. The complaint asked the court to declare the commission as the sole right to continue preserving and documenting the wreck. The commission also wants the court to have third-party interference be temporarily permanently enjoined, including over items that may have been taken, taken from the wreck already. Andy Martin, a spokesman for the Alabama Historical Commission, said one of the purposes of the admiralty claim was to recover any artifacts that may have been taken from the wreck, but the commission is unaware of, of any other parties that may argue ownership in the courts. To the agency's knowledge, there may not be any parties who may come forward, but therein lies the purpose for the admiralty claim. Mark wrote in an email, federal court provides for an open forum for anyone wishing to come forward. This is a standard practice. After the abolition of slavery, those taken from Africa on the Clotilda and their descendants settled in a community called Africatown. The commission may report to the wreck may be the impetus to establish a slave ship memorial in Africatown that could be eligible to be listed in the National Register of Historic Places. I was kind of curious as to what the reason they were doing this, but I think that's what the real thing was there when they said that it allows them to go after anything that may have already been taken. Well, the pictorial that they have here, the acoustic image, there mm-hmm. don't seem to be a lot of stuff there. No. <laughs> and I would be very curious about how you're going to recover or preserve any of that. Does it give any depth on this chart? Well, I thought he said five feet. Yeah, because it was beached, so. And then burned. Yeah. Remember when you go up north and hit Duncan Bay? 
when you got the two wrecks on the far side. Yeah. That's got to be something like that. And if it was at least that good, I could see protecting it. But the pictorial here does not appear to have any kind of quality to it at all. No. What you're going to have to do is get some money, do some sort of coffer dam around it, excavate everything but the wreck, label each thing, and then you make a exhibit for museum. That's about all I can see them doing with this, which it's going to be less than a skeleton. Which is uh, about the return what we, on the investment is never there. Yeah, which is what we'd expect for something this old in that water. I'm looking at this. It's stern with projected hull, form of a 90 foot long vessel. Yeah, I mean, you you still got to be. I mean, a 90 foot vessel is not something I would want to be doing ocean traveling with. As big as ours. The shape is quite interesting, though, isn't it? I mean, it's pointy at both ends. I'd like to have some better pictures. Yeah. Yeah. I'm trying to remember if in any of the previous articles when we've covered it, if they had uh, drawings from it. I think we saw that the classic school book image which showed uh, people in the vessel, but. It'll be interesting to see where the. Yeah, they got some time. So this is a formality. They're going to go through this. Uh, I'm, I'm sure they're going to be granted the, the claim to it. I can't see anybody. Why who, not? Yeah. Who who else would have legal claim to it? Yeah. And then this is probably just part, this is probably on the path to, to get grants. You know, if it's, it's hard to get a grant for something that you don't have rights to. Yep. And then this is one that I, I, it's not directly scuba related, but I wanted to bring it up because it's it's something that can concern many people. And I, and every time I see a headline, it's it kind of gets to me because I'm one of those people who I like to avoid unnecessary risk or be able to mitigate. So what I'm referring to is you've probably seen some articles about people either dying or coming near death from this brain eating amoeba. And this is an article on a website called bustle.com by Brandy Neal. And uh, they say, in summertime, it means fun friends frightening headlines about things that uh, sound like stories straight out of The Walking Dead. Uh, And one of them is flesh-eating bacteria. And then the other is uh, a story about a man who died from a brain-eating amoeba. He contracted after swimming in a lake in North Carolina water park. While the mere existence of both of these parasites is enough to make you not want to go in the water again, uh, the author wonders how worried you should be. The Carolina Department of Health and Human Services released a statement stating that the man became ill after contracting an an illness of Nagleria phalari, an amoeba found in in warm, fresh water. And I could only pronounce that because I looked it up ahead of time. (laughs) And it wasn't easy. Nagleria phalari, or phalari, I guess both are are equally correct. Well, certainly upsetting, it's important to note that these brain-eating amoeba infections are incredibly rare. In fact, statistically speaking, you're much more likely to get hit by a bus. Uh, Nagleria phalari, the scientific name for the brain-eating amoeba, can cause a severe infection that leads to deterioration of brain tissue 
and it is only in freshwater lakes, ponds, and rivers in hot climates. Dr. Nickett uh, Sampal, a New York City-based internist, gastrologist, and member of the Turo College of Osteopathic Medicine, tells Bustle. Although not harmful if swallowed, amoeba can be life-threatening if forced up the nose, for example, by accidentally inhaling water. The disease cannot be contracted through the through food, ears, or eyes, so people should not be worried every time they go swimming, Sanpal says. While the contracting the infection is very rare, there have only been 145 known cases in the United States within the last 40 years. So, you know, a little math tells you it's just a little over three a year. Um, it can be found in most freshwater lakes and rivers across the United States. Because amoeba thrives in warm water, infections are more prevalent during the summer once and most common in the southern parts of the country, especially after prolonged period of heat. This according to the U.S. Centers of Disease Control. In addition, there's no way to avoid Nagleri, uh, Nagleria phalari if you swim in warm fresh water. Recreational water, you should assume that it is present in warm fresh water across the U.S. Symptoms of the brain-eating amoeba can mimic those of bacterial meningitis, though the amoeba actually causes a disease primarily. No, uh, oh, I'm not going to go there. Uh, it causes, essentially, it's a brain infection that destroys brain tissue. Symptoms generally present, present are one to five days after initial infection include headache, fever, nausea, and vomiting. Later symptoms present a confusion, loss of balance, neck pain, seizures, even hallucinations. The infection cannot be spread from person to person. People swimming in freshwater during summer special months should avoid dunking their heads underwater. <laughs> and the amoeba can travel up the nose into the brain. If you're all worried, you can also use nose plugs when swimming in freshwater to be extra safe. In addition, seek medical attention immediately if you develop sudden fever, headache, stiff neck, vomiting, and, water, and swimming in warm fresh water, but within only 145 cases in 40 years, odds are you'll be served uh, better by looking both ways across the street. You know that because getting hit by a bus thing. So does that make you feel better or worse? Well, since we don't have a hell of a lot of warm water up here, I'm not too much worried. Well, the, the, they, but, they, but that just, said, I wonder yeah. how that impacts when you have all the pollutants and bio materials we've been having around our beaches this year. Mm. So I wonder if that increases this issue. Let's see. I, I did pull up the Wikipedia article. Uh, 7 to 15 micrometers in diameter. Smooth. Have a single layered wall with a single nucleus. And I'm trying to see if they've got anything. When conditions approved, the amoeba can escape through pores, seen in the middle cyst, found in. So it can go to temperatures as low as 50 degrees Fahrenheit. Well, that would still get us too, then. Yep. The reproductive stage of the protozoan organism, which trans transforms near 25 degrees Celsius or 77 degrees, and grows best at 107 or 106.7 Fahrenheit, or 42 degrees Celsius. So I'm going to say Michigan is not really the best place for it. 
and Lake Michigan is probably going to be pretty rare. Yeah. Um, you know, some of your inland ponds, you're going to hit those temperatures. Uh, let's see, does it, it doesn't say what will kill it. So I don't know if it just slows down when it's colder. Well, it says it is free living, meaning that it normally lives in fresh water and soil, consuming organic matter and bacteria. Well, too bad it doesn't have a little sign with it so you can tell when it's bad and that's good, yeah. I suppose. Yeah, it can uh, antifungal drugs, which inhibit the pathogen by binding to cell membranes, thus leading to cell membrane disruption and path- pathogen death. However, fatally rate, even with this treatment, is greater than 95%. New treatments are being sought. So, I mean, you got to figure three in the whole United States and You've got all that, you know, Louisiana, Florida, Alabama, Georgia, you know, uh, Kentucky, all these places with <laughs> where this can happen, and people in it all the time, and you only get three cases. So, um, I mean, there's there's a lot of other bugs that are going to be much more dangerous than this. Yeah. It's out here. It's at a one-cell protozoan parasite has been found in the stool of patients with prolonged diarrhea. The organism can develop into a protective cyst to help survive some drying conditions. Yuck. Back There's an article there. on this saying it's uh, hidden perils of swimming in open Canadian waters. Well, that's pretty chilly up there. Yeah. So, interesting. So wear your dive mask and don't get water in your nose. So, but I wouldn't, you know, just, I wouldn't be super worried as a scuba diver. I think we're, it'd be interesting to see if maybe Dan had a, some statistics out of how many of those people were actively scuba diving when it happened. I'm going to guess with those numbers, it'd be almost none. I think us, us river grubbers would have more issues with this kind of stuff than people. I honestly think it would be uh, people working in, in ponds. I don't know, just mentally, I think that, uh, you know, warm, shallow water, kind of stagnant, seems mm-hmm. like that would be like a heyday. You would think I, so. Yeah, because amoebas, from what I remember from school, was that they, you know, they're consuming other cells. Indiana University students are diving for shipwrecks with Noah. Uh, The students packed their gear Friday morning after spending a week creating 3D images of shipwrecks along Alpena's coastline. Indiana Center of Underwater Scientists just headed back to shore. Divers have spent part of their summer semester working at the National Marine Sanctuary. The high-tech equipment being used for the ongoing project to help NOAA uncover changes in the shipwreck Shamrock. It's buried at the mouth of the Thunder Bay. When we were in the water, we were collecting images for the three-dimensional model, said Christian Hawley, a laboratory coordinator for Indiana University. Those actually take thousands of images, so we're working with two GoPros mounted on a bar, and we have those GoPros set to take pictures every two seconds, and we're just swimming over the wreck. The divers will later download their footage, create three-dimensional images. The research will be give the public a detailed view of the shipwrecks and help scientists figure out how to maintain them. I'm an underwater archaeologist, said Howley. I just think shipwrecks are awesome in general, so the opportunity to be able to see all these different shipwrecks is really great for me. I'm also an educator, so I love to be able to bring the students out here to be able to see them develop 
their scientific skills. So that's right here in our own backyard then, in both places. I mean, Indiana University is not far. Uh, they have an they have a campus in South Bend. What, where's their main? Bloomington. 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 Yeah. Uh, when they said they buried at the mouth of Thunder Bay, I didn't look that up. I meant to look up the shipwreck to see how deep it was. To see if they go up there, maybe they'd come down to us and uh, use that sophisticated equipment on a shallow, perhaps shallower wreck. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think we could, we could give them a couple wrecks we'd like some help with. And they don't have to travel so far. And then you could also do it probably in some other semesters. It's right. That was Shamrock, be... right? That was a ship? Yeah. It's a 145-foot ship. Uh, it looks pretty shallow. I'm looking at part of the pictures now. I'm looking to see what uh, – it was a three-mast schooner barge uh, converted to a tow barge. And it does not tell me the darn depth. But I'm looking at the pictures and looking at the visibility and the light. Mm-hmm. doesn't look too deep. Yeah, I'm looking at them uh, at the beginning of the video on the boat, and I'm not seeing any exotic uh, equipment or gear, you know, pretty much uh-huh. single, tank, single tank dive. So I'm, I'm going to guess they're in the uh, – yeah, and, and also, the, like you said, if that image at the top of the mm-hmm. article is from that wreck, I'm going to say 50 feet. Uh, how about 11? Not, Found it. 11. So oh, okay, 11. 11. Yeah. I mean, that, that would, that would, yeah, certainly. But the engine's on it. That's, that's interesting. Yeah, there's a lot of algae on it. Uh, I'm kind of surprised, but I mean, at that depth, you'd, that you'd almost think it'd be more. So, yeah, well, I, I'm looking at the one picture. I don't see much. I see a little algae, but I don't see clumps and clumps of zebra mussels. No, no, um, I, I don't either. I don't. I don't think they get a lot up in that section. Did you look at the uh, National Marine Sanctuary photos? I just put it on the site, Thunder Bay. Mm-hmm. See, click on that. See if that comes up for you quickly. Eleven feet. There's a lot of wreck there for eleven feet. Lots of parts and pieces. No, it's it's loading now for me. Uh, description. The description. was built a schooner, schooner barge, the John W. Hannaford, and reconstructed as a steam lumber carrier in 1904. It was bound for Midland, Ontario, to Toledo with a cargo of lath when it encountered a furious gale in the open lake. The ship sprung a leak and became waterlogged, but the lath cargo kept it afloat until it was beached at Black River, Michigan. The abandoned vessel was later towed to Alpena by the steamer City of Holland and left a short distance from the mouth of the Thunder Bay River. The machinery was later removed, but many interesting structures can be seen on the wreck. Yeah, that's that looks like a great first-time dive, too. I'd be a good snorkeler. Yeah, you could even do that. I wonder what that object with the chain on is off to the photo to the right, bottom right. Uh, I wonder if that was part of the wreck or is that some sort of marker? I don't know. It's interesting, though. Because it could almost be like a weight, you know, that you were you used, you had it buoyed. Yeah. But it w- you wouldn't be able to hold a lot to it. But, yeah, that's uh, yeah, pretty cool. And I think Kevin was just up there in Alpena, wasn't he? I think so. He 
posted some pictures the other day. He also, do you see that um, metal lifeboat he found or relocated? I saw him mention it, but I couldn't see what it was he was referring to in the photo I looked at. I couldn't see anything. Mm-hmm. And that was in uh, Gull, wasn't it? Yes, it is. Yeah. Was it in the bottom? I mean, was it underwater he found it? Yes, yes. Mm-hmm. Huh. Yeah, I have no idea. I hadn't heard of one there. Yeah, if you go to the southern end, back where we used to have the old um, turkey hunt back in the day, uh, there is a lot of wood and vessels and train wheels and all sorts of stuff in that big bay area. Yeah, I, I dove that once with uh, Bob and Kurt. We went and went there, and that is, I mean, part of the when we when we go is when uh, it's late in the year, you know, yeah, almost almost November, and there's just something about diving in dark water that time of the year. It's just kind of a little bit spooky. And there was some large, and, and these were very large stumps, or so, you know, they probably somebody had them in their yard near the river and just topped the tree, and you could still see the cables and chains. So somebody spent a lot of effort getting them into the water, but they sank and went to the bottom. Yeah. And then there was one steamship, I think. When we say steamship, it was more of a steam canoe. Uh, mentally, uh, maybe about 30 feet long, but the the width of it wasn't much more than five feet, at least from what I could see. And that's in Gull Lake. little squirrel moment there. <laughs> and then uh, Noah is also researching uh, two unexplored shipwrecks in the Gulf of Mexico during a nine-day expedition con- uh, conducted by Noah Scientists on board the RV Point Sur discovered two unexplored shipwrecks in the Gulf of Mexico, known as Site 15711 and Site 15470. The two 19th century wooden hulled ships are named by the respective ID numbers in the Bureau of Ocean Energy Management. In July, scientists came across the Site 15711 more than 100 miles offshore in water depths greater than 6,000 feet, far from the bustling. Gulf Coast ports. Very little would remain of the ship, which featured a hull measuring 100 feet length, 35 feet in width. Of significance, a scientist obtained several glass bottles of various shapes and sizes, and telescope, a spoon, and ceramic plates, plus an uh, anemone and a crab at site 15711. Marine archaeologists also discovered iron knees, a method of ship construction that provides internal structure support for deck beams, and frames, which is not commonly seen in the 19th century ships, nowhere reported. In Lake June, remotely operated vehicle collected video data confirming that Site 15470 is a wooden-hulled sailing vessel, likely dating back to the mid-19th century. Although the site located 1,800 feet underwater is first reported in 2013 by oil and gas company is confirmed to be the shipwreck when another company in 2017 this is the first detailed archaeological investigation of the area. At approximately 66 feet long and 33 feet wide, the site lies virtually flat to the seafloor. Almost none of the wooden hulls exposed to over sections of copper sheathing that clue to the vessel age can be seen in some areas of the wreck. Other artifacts will help archaeologists further identify the day the shipwreck include ceramic dinnerware, glass bottles, stoneware jug and anchor, wire, rope rigging, 
a windlass and a ship's bell, reported Noah. Discovery of the site 1511 and 1540.70 will allow scientists the opportunity to learn more about the microbial story living on and around the ship, as well as to study how the shipwreck shaped the microbial biodiversity at the deep sea. A couple nice finds right there. That doesn't, that was the bow, it looks like the bow of a boat, more of a, uh, not a, not a big ship though. It looks like a boat. Yeah. Yeah. These you oh. wonder where, you know, what was the story behind them? Would they na- naturally be out there in the Gulf or could they have just drifted and eventually sank? Oh, I just realized something. That one picture has little asterisks on the side. If you click on it, it shows you what's inside the boat. Nice oh, really? plates and jugs right on the deck. That looks like a ship's wheel. That's, oh, quite interesting. Ceramic plates, blue with, I can't make out what's in the middle of it. But that's, and that's an unbroken plate. That's nice. Yeah, that's some good, good stuff. I'd grub for that. Yeah, a lot of turbidity in this picture here. But, uh, wow. Interesting looking fish, too. Yeah, oh, that's an yeah, anchor. I just good. realized that. That's a huge anchor. And those plates look like metal from here. It's a different picture. Well, that is a nice size. They they oh, do wow. have a sheen to them. Yeah. Uh, but that, that wouldn't have been unusual. I don't think metal plates were necessarily uncommon, like a pewter yeah. plate. Picture 11 or image 11. I don't know what that is, but it is very interesting. Okay. See. Looks like the intake I'm carburetor nine. for a nice Harley Davidson there. Uh, oh, <laughs> it does. <laughs> it does. Uh, it says that is a stern post. Really? With a rudder I, attached. I just posted that into they the site it. also. It's, that yeah. But it looks like an open section at the top. I don't know how that it, can be a stern post. Yeah, I don't know. Maybe. Oh, wait a minute. Oh, I see the bell they're talking about. It's an uh, image 12. It's green. Oh, yeah. I looked at that, and I almost thought it was a plate at first. Wow. Yeah, that's, that's to good. the left yeah. of that fish. This, this makes this makes for great radio, but you'll have to click on it. <laughs> well, yeah, and, and we did put it for the, guys, for the guys that are here now. I mean, yeah. how many of us are going to be at, at 1,200 feet and 6,000 6, feet? Not too much. No, but that's, the picture's... Uh, the pictures make a difference. Yeah, the deco at that depth is a little rough. <laughs> yeah. And here I am. I'm going to paste it into the regular show note uh, chat room. Uh, 11, the bell. I see Derek just gave a thumbs up, so he must have clicked on one of them. Yeah. Yeah, I'd like to find that in like 60 feet of water or 30. Or less. That'd be cool. I like that that image uh, 16. That was a nice one. That actually shows it from the front. Yeah, you can see the cut. Is that copper on the front? That's what I couldn't tell. There's some metal cladding there in the front of it. Yeah. Very nice. Yeah. Well, that does it for Scuba News. And the next article we have is some potentially cool scuba gear, but I have a feeling this might be a little outside of my budget. Uh, A new autonomous robot called Aquanaut. Um, 
which kind of has a resemblance to a transformer. The robot can shape shift between uh, a humanoid form and a submarine form. And this is according to the IEEE spectrum. Uh, that makes it better suited for deep sea repair and other tasks that other robots struggle to perform but are too dangerous for human divers. Uh, IEEE uh, Spectrum's even, or Evan Ackerman watched Aquanaut during a test beneath the surface of the gigantic swimming pool that NASA uses to simulate microgravity for astronauts in training, where he watched autonomous sub open up its outer chassis or move two claw-like arms. For now, the robot is limited to swimming pool tests. After that, it will continue into expeditions in the ocean and then active deployment where it's expected to serve deep-sea components of oil and gas mining rigs. NASA pool access comes courtesy of the two dozen or so former NASA employees who now work on the Houston Mechatronics Incorporated, a company developing the Aquanaut. The type of skills we have at NASA, putting robots in remote locations and getting them to do their most useful work in austere data environments, best match this big problems, working offshore. Did you happen to have a chance to look at the video for that? No, I that I did. I watched that before the show, and that is very interesting. At first, I'm like, oh, that's just appendages. But if you can imagine an ROV, you know, like an Alvin-looking vessel, and then at some point the top shell of it lifts up maybe about half its height, and then and then uh, two arms unfold out, and those are articulated segments, kind of almost like a snake's body. And then they're able to move like you would expect an arm to be able to move. Ha! Huh. So, and in, in, at the end of the video, they show it sitting on the side of the pool. Then you realize this is not like a, you know, you know, one or two guys go and throw this in. This is a pretty beefy-sized uh, vessel. So I think if they, once they get through testing, there's going to be a big demand for something like this because the dexterity that it appeared to have was pretty impressive. Wow. So, again, I think maybe just a touch outside my budget. Just a touch? Yeah. I'm, I'm, I'm thinking maybe you might touch one of these for 5 or $6 million, and that might be a little of an understatement. So that does it for Scuba in the News. Hopefully some people are getting out there and diving. We have some beautiful weather. I had the opportunity this last weekend, but I didn't take up on it too much home projects for me to get done. Uh, but I did see quite a people in the dive club on Facebook showing off what they're able to find. Well, we can live vicariously through others. Yeah, that's... Uh, that's and as we always often say, print, post the pictures. Yes, yes, please put them on Facebook, share them. Yeah, and you always want to know how deep were you, what kind of visibility, and how cold was the water. Yeah. And we always know you went for beer and hamburgers after. Yeah, yeah that's a given. So I understand that there's probably somebody, as we're recording this show, uh, out diving. I think that you said there was some on Havana. Uh, yes, they were going to go out today, and I think they were going to try to plumb that one section that uh, uh, Jim was at last week, which could be part of the decking that got blown off and is off away from the, the major part of the wreck that we're normally familiar with. 
They didn't have prods last time, uh, mm -hmm. but they did drop down into that section that looked like just straight sand. But again, without the prods, it's really hard to tell. Yeah. Just a little uh, gentle prodding, and they might be able to figure out if there's something down there or not. Take some coat hangers, break those ends off, and start prodding the sand. I'm looking on Facebook. I'm not seeing that anybody posted anything yet, so they're probably still uh, partaking of some post-dive Refreshments, yes. <laughs> well, yeah, I, I got yeah. back around oh, quarter to nine, and they they had just been out there a while, so I figured it was dark when they got back up. And I did post earlier in the day the uh, buoy results for both uh, Bridgman and for South Haven, so you'd have a good idea of what the water temp was and uh, lake conditions. I think you had one one, maybe one and a half foot wave action, occasional. Uh, I didn't see very little white caps out there today or this evening. But a beautiful sunset. Yes. Yes, uh, very nice. We chatted a little bit before the, uh, the podcast, but I couldn't remember if we had mentioned anything. Because uh, uh, in, in those who are posting, I'm seeing people diving all over the world. In fact, uh, Rich Sinowick from Divers Incorporated and Divers Sync is uh, over there in in uh, Iceland, diving uh, some beautiful water there. So I'm I'm equally jealous of his diving. So do we know of anything going on this weekend? Is there going to be anybody getting in? I mean, I'd have to imagine this time of year, just about every day. I intend to get wet this weekend. Be at uh, Paw Paw. Or river, I really want to get into the river, so I'm hoping I've got at least four or five foot viz and uh, no more rain. That would be nice. So hopefully next week I can say what the river was like because that's yeah, yeah, you know, cut down on the rain, just kind of the little ease. Even though I don't think the farmers might want it right now, I did. I did see about a week ago somebody turned the sprinklers on, but then we got some rain not too long after it. Well, my yard's toast, so I really should have started watering it already. But, you know, you know, three, three four inches down in my yard is sand. Oh, so yeah. So whatever, it just goes in, it's gone. Yeah. Yeah, mine, uh, the, the, one of the positive effects of uh, not mowing it for quite a while is that it, it tends to, uh, the longer you let it stay, the better it, it's able to handle some of these, these drought or you know drier conditions. Well, do you have a uh, dive safety story of the week? Well, I've got an interesting one from Dan, and I'll just go through it for you, and we can figure out what they think. Exhausted, breathless, and coughing up fluid, out of breath diver coughed up frothy liquid on a liveaboard vacation. This was the second day of diving from a liveaboard dive boat following five dives the previous day. The water temperature was around 80 degrees Fahrenheit, and there was a strong current. I am an instructor with over 800 log dives, and I was diving with a 68-year-old woman who was water certified. She'd been out of the water a few years, but did go on a refresher dive prior to this trip. She was also not very active or physically fit. 
during the first dive of the day to 60 feet of water, 60 uh, or 18 meters, she signaled something wrong. Later, she said she felt exhausted. So we started to ascend, separate from the group. We made a three-minute safety stop, and she attempted to bolt to the surface. So I tried to slow her ascent. Upon reaching the surface, she sped out her regulator, flopped into her back, exhausted. So I towed her back to the skiff. When the captain and I positioned her upright in the water to pull her into the boat, she coughed up about a cup to a cup and a half of clear liquid and foam. After resting on the boat for four or five hours, she indicated she wanted to dive again. We picked a calmer dive site with less current. Towards the end of this second dive to around 60 feet, she looked panicked, signaling to ascend. I again tried to slow her ascent, and we did not do a safety stop. Upon reaching the surface, she again flopped her in her back, exhausted, and kept the regulator in her mouth. I towed her back to the skip, and during the ride back to the boat, she seemed unconscious, but would respond when I asked her to. When back on the boat, the crew administered oxygen, and she began a constant gulping motion. After 15 to 20 minutes of this gulping on oxygen, she was removed from the oxygen, moved into an air-conditioned room, and the oxygen administration was resumed. She stopped the gulping and remained on the oxygen for another 10 minutes. A doctor on board spoke with the emergency hotline at Dan about the incident and followed their recommendations. It is unknown if local emergency services were available or activated. She admitted to having previous anxiety or panic attacks while diving in a near-drowning incident. The doctor on board also noted she had high blood pressure following the incident. She improved over the course of the week after the incident and did not continue to dive, but did go snorkeling twice. Since the incident, her doctor cleared her up for another upcoming dive vacation. Comments While we may never know for sure, this was most likely a cause of immersion pulmonary edema. The boat crew were prudent to put the diver on oxygen, but it was not wise to let her go for a second dive after she recovered. Immersion pulmonary edema is often reoccurring, and the next reoccurrence may prove fatal. After an episode of IPE dives, one should not return to diving before undergoing a thorough medical examination. After the second occurrence, the boat crew did recall the other dives, contacted Dan, and reportedly followed Dan's instructions. IPE may also occur in healthy and young people, swimmers, triathlon athletes, Navy combat divers, but it also occurs in older people with or without an identifying underlying medical condition. Hypertension is one of the predisposing conditions. Other age-related changes is heart function may contribute to this. The diver in question does have some risk factors, including age, lack of physical fitness, and exertion against a strong current while underwater. Hypertension is also a risk factor for pulmonary edema, but while the diver did display hypertension following the incident, she had no history of it and was not on any medication because of it. We cannot know if the hypertension was a cause or consequence. Pulmonary edema is characterized by fluid entering the lungs from the bloodstream into the to the cells of the of the lung. Symptoms include shortness of breath, cough, 
sometimes uh, frothy sputum, whether the fluid that the diver coughed up was a result of pulmonary edema or not. Dan's recommendation would be to breathe 100% oxygen on the surface and postpone diving until the diver could be seen by a physician knowledgeable in diving medicine. It would be in the diver's best interest to be evaluated by a physician who is familiar with the stresses that scuba diving puts on the body and the medical conditions that are contraindications to diving before resuming any diving activity. Lastly, if any diver is unconscious or struggling to breathe, local emergency services should always be activated. I don't think after the first time I would have let her back in the water personally. No, no. When you when you're when you're breathing up foam, uh, which I would not put on the normal, uh, that would be pretty scary. And then wanting to go in the water is like, yeah, you better dry out a little bit. And you know, and sixty feet, you know, you know, ten feet maybe, but not sixty. Yeah. So that that was odd. And then. I'm not sure I know anybody who dives who has a history or of panic attacks. No. No, that would seem to be kind of a dangerous behavior to have for a diver. Because I think we've been talking about, well, if you're old, not active, you're you're physically ill-prepared for heavy currents, what the blazes are you doing in the water? Yeah. Yeah, go snorkeling in 12 feet. Come on. I found that interesting. I think I'd have been scared enough on that boat that I would not have let her back in the water, though. Especially when she says, well, it's happened before and I was okay. It's happened before? Well, yeah, that's what she was saying. Hmm. Hmm. That is scary. Well, at 68 years old, come on. Fast current? I couldn't do fast current. Not unless I had a rope to hang on to. Yeah. Yeah, just it's not, it's not worth taking unnecessary risk. No. Well, that's a good article. I mean, that's something to, to be aware of. There's some new signs to be looking for. Well, it also makes you think, one, as you're getting older, do you think you're gonna, you really should be doing that dive or at that depth? You know, there's a big difference between 10 feet, 5 feet like we're doing grubbing, where you can stand up, inflate your BC, you know. So if it gets, you know, stressed, your out is really easy to get to. Mm-hmm. As opposed to being in 60 foot of water with a current, not a lot of fun. You've never dove St. Clair, have you? No, no, I haven't. I, that's one I wouldn't mind doing, but, you know, it's one of those that, eh. If I don't make it, I don't make it. Yeah. I mean, that's the one that when you're down, you follow the line to the wreck, you got on it, and when you put your head around the wreck back into the stream, if you didn't hold on to your mask, it would rip it off, or it would give you a free flow because the water is so forceful against your purge button. That's when you don't want to be in a place you can't get out of the current, and you're glad you have a hand pull me back up to safety type. Yeah. Well, I don't know. I think we're getting to that time of the show. You have anything you want to plug before we head out of here? Nope. Uh, 
I think everybody who planned on going to the Mud Club picnic has pretty much let me know. That'll be basically not this weekend, but 17th, so three weekends. That'll be interesting to see if we're going to have a nice river dive or if we're just going to wind up having a drift dive, which would still be fun, or a kayak. I would not mind doing a drift dive if we got more than three feet of visibility. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Well, if you are enjoying the show, which we hope you are, we could certainly appreciate use your support. Uh, if you're interested, you can head on to the website, www.scubobsess.com. Click on over to our Patreon link. You know, any amount is certainly appreciated, but $3 or more gets you early access to the show notes. And then, uh, you know, we'll have to come up with some other goodies at some point in time, but it keeps us on the air as we start approaching some additional expenses as the, the year starts to end up here. Um, on Twitter, at Scuba Obsessed. On Facebook, facebook.com forward slash Scuba Obsessed. And if you have feedback, the show at scubaobsessed.com will, will send us an email. And I always get to this point and I feel like I got something more, but there's nothing in my notes. That means that it's time. time. For, it's time. And and I I think I, I, I'm going to have like a triple play this week because it's going to take three bad to equal really bad or is it three kind of bad but so so here we go walking past a veterinary clinic oh goodness a clinic a woman noticed a small boy and his dog waiting outside are you here to see dr meyer she asked yes said the boy i'm having my dog put in neutral <laughs> uh, <laughs> i think you maybe heard that one yeah, that's one way to put it. Yeah. <laughs> and then uh, there's uh, somebody had a talking sheep dog, and he gets all the sheep in the pen and reports back to the farmer. All 40 are accounted for, but I only have 36, says the farmer. I know, says the sheep dog, but I rounded them up. <laughs> yeah. And just so somebody can't say that we're ignoring the cats, there was once a print. Uh, <laughs> goodness. There was once a princess that lived alone in the castle with her cat. Being her only companion, she loved the cat very much. Little did she know the cat was actually a handsome prince that had been cursed to live his life as a feline. Seeing how much the princess loved the cat, the witch that cursed him turned him back into a handsome prince so he could spend the rest of his life with the princess. Upon seeing the handsome prince, the prince said, I bet you wish you didn't have me fixed now, huh? That's good. I like that one. Uh, wow, that, that, that is bad. <laughs> we uh, kind of have a theme going here. Uh, having some damage one way or the other. At least if you're a frog, you know you're not going to get fixed. Yes. <laughs> so on that note, until next week, go out there and get wet. And stay safe.
that's going to get down to just about 55 minutes. Wow. Aaron, that's great. Get into that one hour where everybody 